Hey guys, it's Brandon. Uh, just a quick note before we start today's awesome interview with the great Jim Swearingen. Uh, we actually recorded this a while back, and I've been holding off using it uh, while I've been working on the audio a little bit because it was a little bit spotty, but I just wanted to give everyone a heads up before diving in because it really is a great episode and worth any you know static. So thanks and enjoy. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today we're doing something a little different and talking to Jim Swearingen, the original designer for the Kenner toy line. It was so great hearing the stories and challenges that the Kenner team faced during the lead-up to the premiere of the original Star Wars. So this is Talking Bay 94, episode 20, Jim Swearingen. So today we are joined by Mr. Jim Swearingen, who was on the original Kenner team that first produced the toys for Star Wars. And it's kind of a, a huge honor and also a, going to be a very interesting conversation just because this is a completely different side of Star Wars than what we normally touch on. And so, uh, Mr. Swearingen, thank you so much for, for joining us. Glad to be here. Glad to join you. <clears throat> it's always talk to fans. I'm getting much more used to it, so... Yeah, no, you're kind of a recent addition to the convention circuit and, and slowly getting uh, around America, really. That's right. I was in San Francisco last last weekend. Seems like longer. You know, after all this time, I think we were just talking before we started recording about the Toys Who Made Us in the Netflix series that kind of brought people back to Kenner. And what has it kind of been like going to conventions now and meeting the fans that you've impacted? You built people's childhoods, really. Well, the... The thing I hear the most is uh, either my dad or my grandfather played with your toy with the toys. <laughs> I see two or three generations of family people that come, so it makes me feel a little bit old because it's it has been forty years. But uh, it's fun to talk to people. It's they all have different stories about oh my you know my mom threw everything away you know or gave it away in the yard sale and no I wish I had still had my toys. The the all the people at the conventions are are fun to see. You know, I've been to, I think I've been to four Star Wars uh, celebrations oh, before. Wow. I did one where I did a panel, which, which is all pure Star Wars. The Comic-Cons tend to be a variety of things, and I've right. got illustrators and stuff that do uh, amazing work for other lines. These last couple, you know, where I've been, I've been invited. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I'm I'm using it using it to part of what I do is when I, I do charge people for my autograph, but to lighten the burden I split the money. I split the, uh, the proceeds. The Hydrocephalus Association. Oh, that's I have great. A six-year-old friend that has hydrocephalus, and so I'm I'm raising money for that association, trying to find a, a cure. All the people that dress up and stuff, you see multiple generations of people dressed up in whether it's Star Wars or some other uh, entertainment thing. That's really funny to see. So let's take it back to the Kenner days and before Star Wars. Really, what was kind of the first projects you were working on, and, and when did you kind of start uh, working there? Well, I started working for Kenner in 1972 when I graduated from the University of Cincinnati. I uh, I had an industrial design degree, and at the time, the Vietnam War was still on, and I had a very low number in the draft. 
but my boss, uh, a boss that I had with Rainbow Crafts, a smaller company when I was co-oping, said, I don't care what your number is, come and work for Kenner. And I'm really glad that I ended up doing that. Um, and I first started out with doing Play-Doh and Spirograph and preschool toys. When they formed the preliminary design department, I think around 75 or 76, I got moved into preliminary design, which is the concept for Kenner. It's where a lot of ideas came out of there. Things you know, like you know, Stretch Armstrong and Live were you know, pro- products of that stuff. And then uh, as things progressed, I worked on my first claimed product is I was on the the group that developed the $6 million man. Oh, wow. That was the first licensed product, uh, at least in the boys' area, that Kenner had uh, gone into with 20th Century Fox. And they, I, uh, I claimed the uh, bionic eye as my invention. Oh, wow. Look so, at that. Father of the bionic eye. Yeah, I carved up. A, I, I think we started out with the first you know, prelim model was to take a G.I. Joe and cut a big hole in his head and then carve, cut out his eyeball and put a door people through the back of it which was the conceptual model and then uh, the engineers had to pick out the optics to put it inside the head but that was my uh, contribution so then when the star wars i guess pitch or script got circulated around kenner you had already uh, been aware of george at least george lucas because of thx right so what was that kind of first discovery of george lucas but then also trying out this new product line well george lucas's thx 1138 University of Cincinnati and the Film Society, uh, 1971, the year before I graduated. So I'd seen the movie and I guess put it in the memory bank in the back of my head because I liked the movie conceptually. I thought it was interesting. In 1971, it was pretty radical, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then I was working at Kenner. Then American Graffiti came out, which was his big launch into you know the big names, into the big business of movies. And then in a in a Starlog magazine, Starlog was a kind of science fiction fan magazine that started in 1976. And its first issue was in August, and the second issue was in November. And then that November issue, there was a like a three paragraph blurb about uh, Star Wars, you know, saying 20th Century Fox and Lucasfilm or Luke, George Lucas were hooked up to do a new movie called Star Wars and just some brief space adventure thing. And so I'd seen that and then all these dates kind of float around because it was 40 years ago. But I think in January, the script came in the office and the general rule was, you know, if we'd get t- lots of mo- lots of TV scripts on top of $6 million man we were looking at from Atlantis and Bionic Woman and stuff. But when Star Wars came in, it was kind of, you know, it, it was put up for dibs, and I that was mine. From that day, I, I took the script home that night. We had a book of about 24 black and white stills from the live action. Mm-hmm. And I think we got X-Wing and a, a TIE fighter. So I took it home that night, and I brought it back the next morning, gave it back to Dave, and said, you know, go in your office and read this, but we got to do this. It really was my job and I guess the rest of the people that we convinced the marketing people that, yes, a, a movie, it made no sense for them because it was a movie opening in five months. We wouldn't be able to get product out for a year, usually. It's a 52-week period. So they were like, you want to have product and it'll be gone from the from the movie theater. So it was kind of fighting that 
conventional wisdom and say, no, no, this is something completely different. You know, it's, it's, this is you, we haven't seen this before. And none of the toy stuff, AMT models and a whole bunch of other people had done, you know, tried to do Star Trek stuff. Most of it pretty dreadful. So marketing wasn't convinced initially. They, uh, in February, I think Dave and Craig Stokely from the marketing department saw some clips from the movie from uh, the 20th Century Fox showed them. And there was a little more little more interest because it was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but still not convinced. But we, the good thing was that Bernie Loomis, who was the president of the company at the time, and if with the passion that I had and Dave's backing, it was like, well, okay, we'll go ahead and do this. But, you know, we're not, we're not 100%. But we got some interest. We'll, you know, we'll play it by ear for now. It was based on what we had, which wasn't very much right. as far as scrap goes. We put together a presentation, and in March, Dave Okada and I went out to 20th Century Fox, convinced them that this kind of small toy company, whose you know big foray into licensing was one TV show, that we could do it. So we, Dave and I went out with packing cases full of, of really preliminary stuff and uh, got to L.A. and put it in. We looked like... Uh, I tell people it looks like Char- uh, Chevy Chase and the family vacation. <laughs> and we we went to uh, the Beverly Hilton Hotel where we were supposed to be staying. We pull up and it's it really is kind of humorous to see this big old station wagon with stuff on it. And we get to the, the desk and they say, well, we uh, we don't have any rooms for you. We're sorry. You know, the Academy Awards were, were last night and people stayed over. And we're like, well, OK. And they said, but no, not to worry. We, we found you uh, some hotel rooms. And it's just a little ways away, and they're ready for you to come over. And so we went to this little boutique hotel and, again, drove up to this very – it's a very chic, you know, ultra-expensive little hotel. And our station wagon full of stuff. And then we, we unloaded all of it, and then we had to pack it all up the next morning and go to 20th Century Fox. So that was the first foray into Hollywood for – for me, but uh, we had a great meeting. But George Lucas wasn't there. We met with Mark Pevers and Alan Ladd was the head of the studio. So we had this studio group, and then we let you know we packed all that stuff up and took it home. So that was in March, and then my first trip was early in April. I got to go out and be the point man with Lucasfilm. Mm-hmm. So I got to meet with Troy Lippincott and Carol. Wakarska, who were the licensing people, they rolled out all this. They, they were drawings by different kinds of, you know, blueprints and stuff that we could have sent back with a little more accuracy. And then they said, you know, so it was one of those things where I was really living the Hollywood life. I rented a car by myself for the first time in L.A. and then drove to the Universal Studio lot uh, before it was an amusement park and drove up to the gate. And there's a guy, you know, with a security uniform on and comes out of his booth with the clipboard and checks checks me off the list. Oh, yeah, you know, well, Lucasfilm is, you know, can go park there and they're in bungalow, whatever. So they had this little old house that they were they working out of. And I got to go in there and look at all this stuff. And then they get to have lunch at the cantina. Oh, wow. People dress costumes, you know, it was just like you'd see in the movies. I was like, it really was Hollywood. <laughs> and then they said, well, do you want to go see dailies? And I said, do I want to see dailies? I'm now, I've now been working for months on this thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm inching ever closer to seeing the movie. And I, 
Sure, I want to go see Daly. So we, we drove to Van Nuys and that building in the, the Toys That Made Us, drove up to that building, walked in, and there's, you know, first glimpses. It's like there's an, there's X-Wings and TIE Fighters and a Death Star model on, on model stands just kind of sitting in the hallway. You know, they've been shooting for months on stuff. And, I'm you know, so that's my first, it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, I'm looking at the Death Star that I've, read about but and i'm just now i don't know if i literally drooled but i'm just it's like i can feel my adrenaline it's like this is too cool for a 27 year old and uh they take me into this room and it, there's a bunch of old couches and it's got there's storyboards up on the wall you know taped up on the wall it's very not not at all uh glamorous it's just a bunch of very unattractive old couches so they say i want to take a seat and we sit down and then all these people pile into the room there's all uh, who I don't know who all they were, but they all sat down and somebody says, you know, okay, run this, run the film. And the room gets dark and the film runs. And all I see is this big black screen and some lights flashing up down in the right hand corner of the, of the frame. And they say, Hey, that's great. They turn, they turn the lights back on and everybody leaves. And I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, now, wait a minute. I thought we were going to see. There was some layer of film because it was all done on film back then. Right. Some layer of film, some blinking lights and some other frame of film. That's all I got to see for the for the daily. Uh, oh, you should have been here yesterday. We blew up the, the Death Star literally the day before they had had the models there. I have some pictures I got off the Internet of it flat model of the Death Star because there's they're kind of tiles. Right. That you see a sale every once in a while. So there are the big platforms of these things blowing it up the day before. A little more than a month before the movie, they were still blowing up models, just like I did as a kid. And it turned out, a fellow that was in at uh, the University of Cincinnati uh, in the class ahead of me, he, his name's Charlie Bailey. He he was, I don't know if he was working on it, Industrial Light Magic when I was there or not, but he worked on lots of models and they would take model kits and whatever and put the models together. After that trip, the best part of it was Kenner's getting really serious by the time I'm out there where mm -hmm. they're talking deal points and how much they're going to pay and all that stuff. But really late in April, we got an invitation to go to see the market research meeting on the 1st of May. And no one else wanted to go or they couldn't. I don't know what, what it was, but if it was a Saturday and it's like, well, you know, if you, you buy my ticket, I'm going to see it. So <laughs> I got to see the first screening and that, that wow. the, the most, incre you know, people ask me, what's your favorite film? It has to be New Hope because that first screening, which was a, an audience that had been kind of invited, they had, they sent out a lot of invitations and it was first come first serve. But I sat down with this, audience of you know every demographic you know the lights go down and that was i i heard somebody at, uh, out in san francisco told me that they had come in and put they were dolby it was the first mm. dolby theater george got it you know they they came in and set this theater up for george's for screening so they've got the best speakers and everything's just tuned in the temperature's perfect and the first, the opening scene, you know, after the crawl and the blockade runner comes by, people are kind of, you know, you can just hear an audience when they start getting wiggling in their seats and stuff. But when the destroyer comes over, 
and they've got the subwoofers cranked yeah. and the place vibrates as those engines come over. You could literally kind of feel the air being sucked out of the out of the room because you know it's like all oh, these people take a gasp as this thing comes over, and from that point on, the audience is just nailed. You know they're like riveted to the screen, mm-hmm. and then all that you know, after everything's over and all the the battles are done are won and the titles are about to roll, the adrenaline comes up and people leapt up and cheered. Mm-hmm. You know, there's clapping and cheering. I'd never been in a movie theater that had an audience react. I'd been in any theater that people reacted like that. And I just remember that being it was such an incredible feeling. It's like I just saw history made. Yeah. And I'm the only one for center that's seeing it. <laughs> I had to go out and find a payphone, <laughs> call back to Cincinnati and say, I just saw. I'm so sorry you didn't hear it. See, it it was incredible. (laughs) And it was just because it was just it completely blew me away and everybody else in the audience. And then uh, they said, well, you know, we're going to we're going to show it again tomorrow in L.A. If you want to come down to L.A., you can. And of course, I said, sure. (laughs) So then I had my second Hollywood experience. I drove down to the Paramount Studios in L.A., and Paramount's the, the their gate with the arch over the top that says Paramount is been in movies since the old days. So I get to drive up again. That guy with the clipboard comes out and says, "Now listen, you can park there, and the there's over that way." And I go in, there and they just the the the, uh, the lights had just gone down. So I stood up and watched it from the kind of the ramp into the theater because I didn't want to discourage her anyway. But I saw it saw it a second time. I, on the 2nd of May. And then I flew home and was like, this is, we're golden now. <laughs> then it was just cranked from there on. I mean, it really was. When Time Magazine ran six pages on it, yeah. saying it was the best best movie in the, of the year. And, you know, now it was, you know, all the critics had seen it and the anticipation is, you know, going. And, you know, when it opened in theaters and you had people lining up to see it, you know, they were already anticipating it was pretty amazing. And then that, from then on, uh, I was only working on Star Wars, but I got to I got to be the point person. I got to communicate a lot with the marketing people, mm-hmm. you know, getting material for people to get, you know, to develop stuff, photographs and drawings and stuff. I ended up being the design liaison after the once it was cranked up, everybody wanted a piece of the license and Kenner had first right of refusal on everything. So they appointed Jim Black, who became, he was the product manager, and he would see stuff, and I would get samples of everything, and we would decide whether it was good enough, and we would get to decide whether we'd let them do it, because, you know, it was, our refusal thing was, you know, we looked at things, well, you know, we did let people do wristwatches, but we considered whether Kenner would do them before. Mm-hmm. So I, have, unfortunately, I didn't keep all the samples I had, because I had an amazing amount of Amazing samples. If I'd been smarter, I would have. I would have been. I would have a treasure trove. Huh. But I, you know, I moved a couple times and I changed jobs. And so for the first movie, that was that was what was going on. I got and I got to work on the this a little bit of the second movie because Jim Black and I went to to see the sets of the Hoth Planet. We got to see the hangar and oh wow, wander wander around and see that set. And that was the first glimpse of. Yoda and the Tauntauns, and we were, we were, by that time, they trusted us not to 
spill the beans to anybody. So we got to see a lot of stuff. We weren't ta- we weren't able to bring photographs back, but we at least saw them and got a taste of what was coming. And got and I got to work on the, some of the early stuff. The Tauntauns, my last project, the the first Tauntaun. My uh, my contribution was the trap door in his back. We didn't have with articulated hips, so right. the trapdoor in the, the tauntaun and the dewback were my invention. It's like, well, we got to do something. We got to get, you know, we need a tauntaun, <laughs> and we got to get them on it somehow. So <laughs> that was my, the last. Well, it was not uh, technically it wasn't my last, but I guess technically the last thing I, I worked on, big deal, was uh, Boba Fett. Right. We went out to see the costume, and I got to take pictures of it and bring them back to model it. Boba Fett, this, that was the trip I most regretted. Uh, one, it was great to go see this top secret and to be like on the, you know, part of the in crowd and knowing what was going to come with this character. But, but Dave Okada and Gary Kurtz, the producer, went off to do something. They went off to talk about something somewhere else. And I was, uh, and I, I went back to the, to George's office with him and he had, his dog Indiana was there and we're sitting around. He's got all this stuff, you know, he's, he's, he's a little, I guess he's a little bit of a collector himself. He has this, and I need to find out his name. There, there was a Frank Frazetta. He was a, an illustrator, right? He, this illustration, the paint, the original painting, which is a big painting of a black Viking with big horns riding on a big black Belgian horse, you know, real heavy duty horse, mm-hmm. all in black against this light background. This, so I've got, I'm seeing this painting. I've got that poster. I've got the poster of that in my office. <laughs> so it was like this common bond kind of thing. And we're chatting. And he's got a, um, he's got a Buck Rogers, a tin Buck Rogers ray gun in this nice case hanging on the wall. Like, oh, that's really cool. And he's talking about he had he had part interest in a comic book store in New York with a old I don't know high school college friend. So we're like we're chit chatting and the dogs there and we're just like talking about oh this has been really fun you know we're really getting into this thing and um, you know by that time it, it was obvious we Kenner had a rocket going and you know things are really moving. So it, you know, they couldn't do any wrong at that point. And I, I'm there for, we're just talking about all that stuff. And I regret the fact that I sat in George office, George's office for an hour all by myself, kind of shooting the breeze. And in hindsight, it was like, you should hire a toy designer to work here with your movie people. And the communications would be so much easier. So that's my one regret. When you were first reading the script, I guess, going back, what initially were you picking out? I, I'm very curious, to, like when you're reading the script, I'm sure you had to go through and kind of say, okay, here are the, the characters that we could pull from, or here's the concept art that really speaks to, to being turned into a toy. Was there anything specifically that you saw that was going to be the most effective way to, to put this in toy form? Yeah, what really, what really, really, the thing that struck me first, because I'm reading the script and there's all this, you know, there's a love story going on and there's, you know, this conflicts about uh, the kind of the political stuff. But what, what really stood out to me was the descriptions of the X-Wings and TIE Fighters and Millennium Falcon, all this, you know, being chased by the TIE Fighters and then the Death Star blowing up 
you know, doing all that stuff. That to me, the my first instinct was that the spaceships, the, the X-wing Tie Fighters, that stuff was going to be the hero of the toy line, and that the figures would be secondary to that play. So, if I was going to do an X-wing, uh, I needed if I needed figures to be, I needed something practical. So, we were doing six million dollar man. It's twelve inches tall and. G.I. Joe was still 12 inches tall, and um, and now that I watched the uh, the Star Trek part of the Toys That Made Us, Mego had done 8-inch Land of the Apes characters. Everything was too big to be a practical size. So we determined, you know, then it was, you know, how do I model the, I'm going to do figures, and all those characters are going to be important. So that's when we, you know, we went, I went out in search of, you know, how can I make some quick models to show people? And that's where the uh, Fisher-Price adventure people came in, because I found these truck drivers. And the, you know, modeled ones, you know, the first ones were body putty and exacto knife models. And the model shop was trying, we were trying to figure out how to do a lightsaber that actually came out of the hilt. The first model was a really heavy-gauged monofilament fishing line and a spool that the model shop put in the back of the figure. The line you could pull the line out of his hand and then and then reel it back. You could, you know, screw the thing back in there would disappear. The monofilament, the way it's manufactured, takes a a set, it's always curves. We didn't have a material that would stay straight, you know, had a memory that would keep it straight. But then Suddenly it was like, okay, this is you know turnover time. We got to get rid of this thing, put it into the engineers and designers that are gonna make it into a manufactured product. So we so it got turned over. That model got turned over, and then eventually they figured out the the first exam, the first uh, the telescoping lightsaber. And then somewhere along the way, the the infamous meeting where Bernie Loomis, you know, put his fingers up and say, let's make them this big. Because they grew, They're, the yeah. adventure people are a little small. We built, we did, we had already built the X-wing and the Tie Fighter prelim models, and all that stuff. Then it was pump out all the paperwork that we need to get it turned over and get the the uh, the designers and engineers that do production to get that stuff done. So the, the first the first eleven I had my hands on, I I turned over the first eleven. The the Death Star commander, the guy with the black helmet, it was like well. We, we need another figure, so they ended up doing that guy. And you ask how I, why I did, really, and I tell people this, as toy designers, you try and think think like kid and look back at your experience. My favorite toy back when I was, you know, a uh, Star Wars age kid, you know, probably six, seven, eight, I had this, what, I've never seen it since. I haven't, I don't, somebody probably has one out there. I had this, inc- what I thought, what I remember is an incredible Rory Rogers stagecoach, which had was drawn by, I don't know, two or four horses and had figures and you know all the details that wheels would come off and the doors open and all that all that detail and that thing would, you know, I'd be running that thing around just like the next wing of Tie Fighter just on the ground. But that that kind of play was what I, I think I was using in my brain when i'm looking at star wars it was like that's the kind of play i want i want to be able to recreate those, those scenes i would watch Roy rogers on tv and then recreate it 
and the X-Wing and the TIE Fighter let kids recreate battle scenes in Star Wars. So that was kind of, I think that's the connection. Out of all the toys that you designed, you know, all of them are iconic, obviously. But do you have one that's kind of stuck with you or, or one that you're the most proud of? I know we talked about the hidden the hidden latch for the Dubak and the Tauntaun, but are there any other kind of things like that or, or design elements that you, you were really proud of? Well, I think probably the X-Wing and the TIE, but those are the models I had the most to do with. I, you know, I did the drawings that went to the model shop that built the very first prototypes, figuring out the, the mechanism for making the wings split. You know, we didn't have very much high-tech stuff. Red LED in the front was the highest-tech piece of uh, stuff we had. The sound mechanism, the very high-tech, what we called Mubuchi motors. They were Japanese, old Japanese electric motors, and the sound the X-Wing and TIE Fighter was a piece of mylar running on a little gear to make the sound. Mm -hmm. But I think the X-Wing and TIE Fighters, those are, it's just like the New Hope. It's like, this is, we're, we're breaking new ground here, so. The detail and the type of toy that was really kind of changed the face of toys and then also pretty much directed the the movies from then on. Um, Without you and the rest of your team, really, we would have a very different Star Wars and a very different media landscape than we do right now. So with that being said, I want to thank you for, for your time. This has been, I've just been loving hearing all these stories and hearing more about how this all came together. Do you have any appearances coming up or anything that you would like to, to let fans know about? I've already got my tickets to go to the uh, the celebration in April next year. So. Oh, perfect. We'll see you there. Yeah, we, we got our, our five-day pass for Chicago, so I'm ready. Yeah, I can't. I'm, I have three hotels, I think. So. <laughs> You're really ready. Yeah, I've not booked hotels yet, so I should probably get on that. But My first one was Indianapolis in 2005. One, mm-hmm. I think one and two were really local. They were small. I can't wait. I'm yeah. I got a five day pass. I figured I'm just gonna go. You know, I'm gonna I'm just gonna hang out and I'll I'll see lots of people that I know because lots of collectors and stuff now know me. And I really do appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. You be good. <laughs> I'll try. Bye. Thank you again to Mr. Swearingen for the time and the stories. It really was an enormous honor to have him on the show. Next week, we'll be interviewing Simon Williamson, who played Max Rebo and a lot more in Return of the Jedi. So until then, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.